Normally we sing three songs before the sermon, but we decided to get a little tricky today, and it's good to keep everybody on their toes. It is a joy to be with you today and uh, encounter our Lord uh, through the pages of Scripture. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 4. This morning, I want to ask you a very simple question. It's an important question, uh, and it is this. What are you trusting in for your acceptance before God? What or whom are you placing your trust for your acceptance before God? If you're in Christ, then, of course, the answer is Jesus. Right? We go to the Sunday school room, you teach little kids, and they know, hey, I've got a 30% 30% chance it's going to be either God, Jesus, or the Bible, so I'll say one of those, and usually I'm, I'm pretty right. If you're trusting in Jesus, then you are a believer. You know that answer. Jesus is my righteousness. I need no other righteousness. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Amen. That's what we believe. It's our confession. But I want to go from the the theological construct that we all know and repeat and and work our way down into the practical for just a moment, I want to ask you, when the Word of God exposes your sinfulness, how do you respond? How do you respond when the things that you would like not to be a part of who you are still remain and they get exposed? Do you run to the Lord or do you run away from Him? Perhaps if we were to to get a little bit closer to home, if you do run to the Lord, which so far so good, Jesus is who I'm trusting in for my acceptance before God, then when I sin, I run back to him. Let me ask you this, when you run back to the Lord, how do you imagine his disposition toward you? How do you conceptualize God when you come back to him in prayer? And, and maybe it's not the, the kind of one-off where you sin in a way that's unusual and, and it's not really characteristic of who you are, but maybe the things that you would say, I haven't confessed the same sin to the Lord once or twice or dozens of times, but, but hundreds This isn't something that I occasionally struggle with. It's a besetting sin. It's a besetting weakness. It's it's something that I find, try as I might, the Spirit is is desiring one thing within me, the flesh the other. And day after day I find, boy, I still often reach back to those old patterns of thinking and doing. What is God's disposition toward you when you come to Him in prayer? And if we're honest, if we were to think of a human response... At some point, it starts to get a little bit annoying. You start to think this, maybe. Well, if you're really sorry, why don't you just stop doing that? Have you ever said that as a parent? Son, I don't want to hear I'm sorry one more time. You know what I want? Change. Demonstrate you're sorry by stopping what you keep doing. And so I would ask, when... When you are absorbed, uh, excuse me, when you go back to the Lord and you, you sense that failure, do you fear that God is impatient with you? Or you'd say, well, well certainly God has promised to forgive my sin, but, but I'm sure he's getting a little bit sick and tired, frankly, of putting up with it. 
that at times God is getting a bit worn out. We know that God loves holiness. In fact, it's, it's his most supreme attribute. If you had one word to describe God, holy is the best word to do it. He's the thrice holy God. Holy, holy, holy. Other, other, other. Set apart, set apart, set apart. And so we understand that that, that is who he is. And the only way that we could ever know him is through Jesus Christ. The basis of our acceptance before God is nothing that we could ever offer. It's nothing that we could provide. Rather, it's something that we receive by faith. But how does God feel about me when I'm just a bad Christian? When I'm just spiritually lame? Today we come to a transition in the book of Hebrews. It's an opening section to a whole new vista, and it deals with this very issue. See, so far, everything that we've been hearing about lately has been pretty negative, has it not? You've either been not listening or asleep or something's happened. If, if you didn't find chapter 4 and really from 3-7 on to be a little bit heavy. I mean, we've been hearing about warnings. We've been hearing about impending doom and fear if there's unbelief. We've been hearing that today, if you hear the voice of God, you're not hard in your hearts because you don't know if you're going to have tomorrow. We're hearing a lot of, of sobering warnings that are not meant to be threats, but rather encourage us to pursue the Lord. And right now at this point in the book, the author is, has set us up for what he's about to say next. See, he's been tilling the soil. He's been stirring things up within us. He's been causing us to to be sober-minded and to assess ourselves and uh, to look at ourselves in light of God's word. And as we do that, we, of course, find ourselves a bit lacking. We find ourselves wanting. And with great skill and pastoral care, he's established that so that now he can begin to show us how Jesus, the high priest, solves all of these problems for us. He's not going to talk about it just this week. In fact, if you don't think of Jesus as a priest, you will in about 20 weeks because that's the main point from chapter 4 right now where we are through chapter 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and, and into the beginning of 10. He's going to detour a little bit along the way, but the central point will be unpacking and understanding the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. And so here's what I want to say to you. If you are trusting in Jesus today, then you have a great high priest. If you're trusting right now in Jesus as your Savior, then you have a great high priest. And friends, this ministry is not some distant reality. It's not something that is is merely going to take place in the future down the road. Rather, this ministry is for you right now, and his mercy as your high priest actually shines most brightly when you are at your worst. You're saying for for the priest to, to come to God's people when they're at their worst, here as Christ is to us, his mercy shines brightest when you are at your worst. And so on the heels of hearing severe warnings, being on high alert, watching out, being fearful even, 
We came to chapter 4, verse 12 last week that said, For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We saw that this is not merely a, a cute little uh, precious moments thing that you'd put on the mantle about uh, the power of God's word. It's, it's actually a little bit terrifying because it's coming right on the heels of this warning against unbelief and it's saying the word of God actually knows everything about you and it will expose you. And the result is verse 13, then there's no creature. No creature, no human who is hidden from his sight. That is the Lord's sight, but instead all are naked and exposed to the, the watching eyes to him to whom we must give an account. And so if you've been listening, if you've been paying attention, that is a, a little bit of a scary verse. It's unnerving. And so this leaves you then, if you're honest, undone before the Lord. There's no more hiding. And yet that verse is not intended to drive you away from the presence of the Lord, but rather to drive you right back to his open arms. Look at verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. These three verses, this little paragraph contains two commands, two instructions. And they're grounded in this priestly ministry of Jesus Christ that is working in your behalf. If I were to ask you right now, hey, just uh, right there in the margin of your Bible or on a piece of paper, I want you to write out real quick how the priestly ministry of Christ impacts your daily living. Most of us would probably have to stop and think for just a minute. I mean, I, I know I'm in Christ. I know he's a priest. I know he's doing something right now for me. But what we'll see here is that this great and sympathetic high priest actually takes theory and brings it into sharp focus that every morning, every evening, every day of your life, you have this priest ministering on your behalf. And it's to result in confidence and courage and strength. And so our outline this morning is very simple. Since Jesus is your great and sympathetic high priest, number one, cling to him with confidence. That is the first instruction right here in the text. And then the second is come boldly to God for help. If you remember what's happening in the big picture here in Hebrews, our, our author preacher is providing an argument to convince Hebrews who've left Judaism for Christ not to go back to Judaism. He's writing to Hebrews to not be Hebrews anymore, but to be Christians. And what he's telling them so far is that Jesus is better than any prophet. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than the old covenant. He is the better sacrifice. And today he is the better priest. And so these believers, as we've established in the first weeks, were shaky in their faith. They're starting to doubt whether or not Christ was enough. Whether or not Christ was really worth it. 
And so this morning, as we begin to understand the ministry of this high priest, this is to replace your doubts and fears as a sinner encountering God and replace them with confidence. Okay, so you're to think, how am I to, how am I to leave this place today thinking differently? Let the ministry of your high priest replace all of your doubts and fears as a sinner encountering God and replace them with confidence. Said in very plain language, you're to leave here believing that God wants to see you and he welcomes you into his presence and that even when you have failed in your sin, he still welcomes you all the more to come. And the reason is because when you sin, your welcome is not based or predicated upon your performance, but rather his performance. And so the very first thing that you are to do Because Jesus is your great and sympathetic high priest, is you are to cling to him with confidence. Verse 14, since then, therefore, therefore what? Therefore, since we will give an account. So because we're going to face God one day in judgment, because the living word is going to expose every thought that you've ever had and the intentions of your heart and it's all going to be laid bare, because the trial date is set and one day you're going to court and you don't have an option, You've been subpoenaed. Because of that, you are to hold fast your confession. Now, if you were suddenly charged with a crime, gone through the process and there was a trial date set, I don't know about you, but the first thing I'm going to do is try and find, you know, the Johnny Cochran 2.0. I mean, I want, a, I want a good defense lawyer here. I need someone that can find some way to get me off the hook. So when you think about facing God, the just judge, there's no games that would be able to be played. There's no duping this judge. There's no way to dismiss the evidence against you. There's no technicality or, or protocol that wasn't handled properly where you could have a mistrial declared or, or somehow um, have the charges against you dismissed because they were improperly levied. No, the point is that this, this living and active word that's going to come and cut and separate and reveal is going to leave you without an excuse. You will give an account. There's nothing that could change that date. And so now you're to hold fast to something, and it is your confession. But you do this because you have a great high priest. Now, priests take us a while to understand. I love that about the Bible. I was listening to a message this week, and I thought, I'm 20 minutes into listening to this message. And if I was born in the first century, I wouldn't need any of those 20 minutes, right? Because you could just start with the message itself because you understand all of it. But for us, living here in the 21st century, is that right? 21st century? Uh, Western world, we got to take a little bit of effort sometimes to understand what's happening in the scripture. So the priest here, the, the priests were were essentially coming with a a very basic job description. And if you were to summarize it, it was to pray for the people and to make sacrifice for the people. Okay, so perhaps you've had to look for a job. You know what it's like. You're reading through the job description. The job description for a priest primarily could be summarized in the big, bold headings as pray for the people, make intercession, and make sacrifice for the people. 
Now, the high priest was a little bit different. So the high priest had a special job description, okay? And what would be different on the high priest's job description that was most significant was that on the day of atonement, the high priest would be the one to officiate. The master of ceremonies, if you will. First high priest was Aaron. This was the most significant role then, the most significant job duty of the priest. And one day each year, the sins of the nation were to be taken away. Now, when Aaron was first installed as the priest, this began to do something in the hearts of God's people. See, to have a priest was a comfort. It was a comfort to have a priest. Because now you had someone whose sole purpose was to bring you to God and to bring God to you. It was a a mediator, a go-between. Because you couldn't access God on your own. And so the the priest was a great blessing. If you think about all the pagan nations around Israel, they had their false priests, but they didn't have priests of Yahweh. So the only way you had access to Yahweh was to come through the priestly line. It was Aaron's family, as you know. It was a blessing to have a go-between and an advocate. The author here says, Since then, we have. Since then, we have. Verse 15, for we do not have. So, he's talking about possessing something here. As humans, you're used to possessing things, right? You could have a hangnail. You'd have a cold. You'd have a house. Perhaps you have COVID. You'd have an inheritance. There's lots of things that we possess, from the very trivial to the great, but I couldn't just walk up to, to my neighbor and say, uh, this is now my house, I want to have it. Why? Well, it's, it actually doesn't belong to me, it belongs to, to my neighbor, and the deed is either in their hand or in whatever bank is lent the money to buy the house. There's some type of, of legal right and claim where he has that house and I have this house and I don't have his house and he doesn't have my house. You begin to think about The greatest possession that you have, usually you think of relationships on earth. Perhaps you would say health or a family member, maybe your children. How about your greatest possession being the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ? I mean, he's saying that this is yours. You have it. You have all of it. You possess it. It belongs to you. You have a a legal claim You have a share in this priest's ministry where he's not just the priest or even the high priest or the great high priest, but he's your high priest. We have, he says. My friends, this is a present active indicative. What does that mean? It means that we're possessing it right now. This isn't future benefits that will one day be provided to us by God. Rather, we have this priest right now. Every morning, if you like it or not, when you wake up, every night when you go to bed, while you're sleeping, not doing anything productive, you have this high priest. And the text is not saying, since there is a great high priest, but rather since we have this high priest. My friends, do you recognize that this is not a future benefit on layaway, but it's, it's something that actually impacts your daily life right now, whether you realize it or not? 
See, you don't need any human priest. Have you ever noticed I don't wear one of those little cheesy collars? It's not because it's a fashion statement. I'm not against wearing a collar. I guess that's what I needed to do. But I'm just like you. I wear the same clothes you do. I'm just a guy bringing the word. Don't call me father. Don't confess your sins to me. I can't help you. You need a high priest. And if you've trusted in Jesus, you have one. We don't believe in Roman Catholic priests. We don't believe in evangelical priests. There's no man who gives you access to God except for the man, Jesus Christ. And he has passed through the heavens. This is Jesus, the Son of God. See, the reason why he's a great high priest is because he's God. He's not just a human priest. I mean, right here in the text, it's, it's his humanity, Jesus, the Son of God, his deity, right there, one person. And so Jesus, as your priest, doesn't merely show you the way to get to God. Maybe you sing that song, we used to sing that in youth group. You came from heaven to earth to show the way. Did a lot more than show the way. He actually made the way to get to heaven. Right? Jesus, in fact, would say, I am the way. He didn't come to earth to show the way. He came to earth to make the way to get to God. And so when it says right here that he passed through the heavens, the idea is that when he offered that sacrifice, he went right up to the Father. He seated at the right hand, Acts says. Because the work was done. It was complete. It was finished. He didn't have any more work to do, and that is why he passed through the heavens. You say, well, that sounds pretty good. His work's done. He's in heaven. But then what's the fear in the human heart? Well, if he's in heaven, maybe would he forget me? I mean, that's a long way to go. Between here and heaven, I can't see him, can't feel him, can't hug him, can't really hear from him audibly when we converse. So the thought would be that perhaps Jesus, who passed through the heavens, might forget me. You know what it's like. I mean, when the, the moment is over, sometimes you just forget. Remember Joseph? He's in prison. He's there with the baker and the cupbearer, and they're all talking. Bro, I've got you. I'd never forget you. Yeah, no, I've got you. If you get out first and you die, okay, and if I get out first, and they're all, they're all together, and then what happens? Joseph gets forgotten. As soon as the pressure's gone, I'm off. I'm scot-free. But something you need to understand about a high priest that uh, we don't really notice because we haven't seen it is they had this beautiful regalia, this bright robe that would be worn by the high priest, and you know what would be emblazoned on the arms of the high priest? The names of the families of Israel. See, when that priest would go and minister, he was to remember that he's not just there for himself, but he's actually representing God's people, and not generically, but, but name by name of the family. He's serving them. He has them on his mind, their needs, their sins. And so when it says that Jesus has passed through the heavens, it's not speaking of his distance from us, but rather the completeness of his work. He passed through the heavens not to, to get far away from us, but rather because he, he got the job done and there's nothing left to do, and so that's why he passed through the heavens. Meanwhile, as a high priest, our names have to be written on his 
robes. We sing that. Our, my name is written on his hands. That's priestly imagery. That's high priest language. And so in light of all of that, the author says, let us hold fast our confession. He doesn't say, you guys hang on to your confession. He says, let us. This preacher author is including himself. One of the folks. Each one of us needs this confession as much as the other one. Literally, because the word of God will scrutinize you, because the word of God will test you, because judgment is coming, because your heart naturally is inclined to be hardened and hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, therefore cling to your confession. Confession is such a great word. Homologia, say the same thing. We talk about confessing sin, we're saying the same thing that God says. We're talking about confessing Christ, we're saying the same thing. And so you notice he doesn't just say, hang on to your faith as your own private devotional life with your own secret relationship between you and Jesus. It's a confession. Cling to the words of the gospel that are to be on your lips. Why is that so important? Well, if you're a Hebrew, right? Man, I'm getting, I'm getting a lot of flack right now for being a believer. Maybe I'll just kind of shrink back, keep my mouth shut. I'll be a private Christian. Me and Jesus will have this very wonderful relationship, but I'm not going to be so dumb as to confess him. Now, the author says to believe the gospel, to cling to Christ, is to cling to your confession. My friends, this is not the confession of a creed. This is the gospel. This is that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we might be saved. No other access to God. And so you begin to think about Jesus in this light. You say, okay, he's, he's perfect, he's great, he's a high priest, he's gone to heaven. But how then would he put up with a sinner like me? I mean, now that he's in the comfort of heaven, why involve himself with issues down on this earth? He doesn't need to anymore, so it would seem. And so verse 15, the author summarizes what we see over and over and over in the Gospels put on display in one beautiful clarifying sentence here. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way, every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. For we do not have a high priest who is unable. Is that kind of weird to you? You put it in the negative. Imagine after church today, you're having an interaction with someone. And they say, um, we do not have a car that is unable to start. And you think, that sounds kind of bad. You think, okay, wait a second. We do not have, okay, a car that is unable to... Oh, okay. So all your cars start. Probably a better way to, to say it. You could just come up and say, hey, all our cars start. That'd be easier to understand than saying, we do not have a car that is unable to start. Do you think the author doesn't know that'd be an easier way to put it? Why is it negative? Why is it phrased in that way? Think about it this way be true to say Jesus sympathizes. 
But I think what that fails to account for is, is the fear in the human heart. See, the fear is that he is actually not able to sympathize. So you realize that it's, it's not merely that our priest sympathizes, although they, that is true, but the way it's phrased here is, is that you don't have to fear that he's unable to sympathize with you. The deep down fear that you have a high priest that is so great that he can't relate to you. Or so perfect that perhaps he's getting sick and tired of dealing with the same sins day after day, year after year. You know, when you're around greatness or someone that is different than you, the common thought is there's no way to relate right now. Remember this feeling when I had first started uh, cleaning carpet in Palm Beach County and you show up in these estates and mansions that, you know, perhaps are old money. And old money is where uh, the person living in the home didn't earn it, they inherited it. So, you know, things like the, you know, the Heinz family or uh, things like that, where you have old, old money, the Hershey family, those types of things. And so you're in these massive estates, and, you know, as you're going into the home, you're recognizing, not exaggerating, one of the cars in the garage, one of the cars in the garage, one, just one of the cars in the garage is worth 20 years of my salary. Right now as a carpet cleaner. 20 years. That means if I was rent-free, living with mom, all my meals are paid for, and I'm not paying taxes, in 20 years, I could afford one of the cars that's in your garage. We're going to have a hard time relating to each other. <laughs> we, have, we have some struggles that are common to man, but we also have some that are pretty different, right? And so I don't expect you to necessarily, if you were born into that with the, the silver spoon, to understand paycheck to paycheck, or withdrawing your account and there's no more funds. It wasn't you had two accounts and you just overdrew one of them. It's you overdrew all that you had left. I, I don't expect you to understand that. And so we hear that this priest is perfect and he is great and he is our high priest and it automatically reminds us of our own unworthiness. My friends, can I tell you that if you see your unworthiness, praise God for his grace in your life? Praise God if you feel unworthy in the presence of God. So the majority of times that I have a conversation with someone about Christ who's not saved, they don't see their unworthiness. Just yesterday, I got to talk to, to Debbie, and I'm sharing the gospel with Debbie, and Debbie thinks that God loves her because he loves everyone, and certainly he would love her. The concern is not, I feel so unworthy, I'm sure God wouldn't love me. Rather, I, I've dumbed down my view of God to say that, in fact, God would accept me based upon the merits of who I am and what I've done. And so when you think about this high priest, the reason why he relates to you is not because he's not perfect. It's not because his bar is so low. Rather, because of his sympathy. He sympathizes. Guys, this is, this is an amazing truth. This is a little bit brain-crushing to try and work out what is meant here. It's a, a compound word, sum and pathos. So you know pathos or ethos. We talk about the, the passion within and, and sum is to have it with. So the idea is to, to suffer with, um, to share in the experience of, literally to have the same passion. Someone who enters into the situation, who's familiar with it, who knows how to come in and address what's happening. You think about in the, the earthly priesthood, that, that was a priesthood that would continually fail 
Uh, You remember Aaron's sons were both struck dead because they dishonored the Lord? And so the earthly priesthood, as we'll see and go through this book, didn't really offer you a lot of lasting hope because it was sinners that were ministering. Now you get a perfect high priest, and the issue is, is this perfect high priest going to be able to, to care and tend for me and my weakness? And so it says that he is not unable to sympathize. Now I want you to think about this for just a minute. What is the sympathy connected to? Well, the sympathy is, is weakness, which could mean any type of weakness, but in the text it actually says, but or rather, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So the sympathy is connected to our weakness in temptation. It's not merely that he has sympathy for you when you get a cold because he got a cold. It's true. He had growing pains, he had headaches, probably cut himself or hit his thumb with a hammer as a carpenter. So he, he knows those weaknesses. He felt tired. But the weakness here that he's sympathetic toward isn't primarily the physical bodily weaknesses that you would experience. Rather, it's the weakness that you find in temptation. Now think about this for just a minute. If God is God, which he is, and if he knows everything, which he does, Why would he need to experience anything to sympathize with us? Have you ever thought about that? It's not as if God was in heaven saying, man, it looks like they're, they're having a hard time down there, and I just can't seem to figure it out. It's beyond my knowledge. It's beyond my understanding. It doesn't compute. I wish I could understand it. You know what? I'll go take on flesh, and then that way I can understand, because I can't understand unless I do that. That's not at all what is happening here. Rather, the idea is for our comfort. He did this so that we would be assured of his sympathy for us, not because he actually needed to learn it. See, we think that our sin makes us unlovely to God. Rather, he enters in and understands our weakness. Calvin put it this way, Christ has put on our flesh and also its feelings or affections So that he not only paroled himself to be real man, but had also been taught by his own experience to help the miserable. So there it is. He's learning how to help us. But listen to the clarification. Not because the Son of God had need of such training, but because we could not otherwise comprehend the care he feels for our salvation. You understand that was was for our sake, so we could believe that which seems too good to be true. The fact that he would care for us in that way. It's not as though God had to learn how to be merciful. He's all-knowing and he is merciful. Rather, this sympathy of him becoming flesh and knowing the struggle of temptation was so that we might believe his ministry for us as a sympathetic priest. So when you begin to think about what he can relate to, he can relate to every element of temptation that you have faced yet without sin. And so there's this great solidarity that Jesus knows what it is to be a human. He can relate to every experience you've had as a human in terms of the struggles of temptation, except one thing. You sin and he doesn't. Yet without sin. And so this priesthood then is a wonderful and glorious 
priesthood. In fact, as we'll see in the next chapter, the, the human priest would deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. And so Jesus, coming as the perfect high priest, walked this earth. He lived as a man. He knows the struggle of temptation. He knew how challenging it was to entrust himself to the Father and his humanity. And so now as he serves and ministers as a high priest, it's not one who's impatient with us. Rather one who says, you know what? I know the struggle. And when you come to me, I'm going to show you mercy. Thomas Goodwin put it this way. There is comfort concerning such infirmities. He's talking about our moral weaknesses. And that your very sins move Jesus to pity more than to anger. So far from being provoked against you, as all his anger is turned upon your sin to ruin it, yea, his pity is increased the more towards you. Even as the heart of a father is to a child that hath some loathsome disease. Or is he saying you picture the way a, a father is going to hate cancer in his child and not hate his child? That certainly God's attitude toward your sin is not accommodating. It's not a pushover. And yet there's not a displeasure with you as his child when you sin. God is certainly not uncaring. But his disposition toward you has changed. And I remember growing up saying God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Well, it depends. It depends on which sinners we're talking about. If we're talking about sinners who are outside of Christ, that is not true. In fact, Psalm 11.5 says that God's soul hates the wicked. Psalm 5 says that God hates all evil doers. And so when God punishes sin, when there are children of wrath, it's not merely that he hates their sin, he actually hates their sin and their opposition to him, which is committed by that sinner. And so for you to say God loves the sinner but hates the sin is only true if you are in Christ. That's only true if you're in Christ. And then it is true. And so when you begin to think about the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ, this is a wonderful truth. Jesus ministers to me every day, and he ministers to you. You start to think about the implications of this. This is my maker, this is my king, this is my master and my Lord, and yet every day he's serving me? This feels backwards. So the author of Hebrews is saying that you are to trust him, you are to cling to him, you are not to fear him. When the accuser of the brethren comes and says, God's patience is wearing thin, don't come back. You are to say that my access to God has been granted by Jesus Christ. And now his attitude and disposition to me is one that he knows my weakness, and he died to pay for every one of my sins. And so now when I sin, rather than stirring up his anger, it conjures up his compassion toward me as his child not annoyed. I'm not tired of you. I'm sympathetic. My friends, if you're in Christ, this is your high priest. And you are urged to cling to your confession of Christ with confidence. That is our first point. The second one is to come boldly to God for help. If Jesus is your great and sympathetic high priest, then you are now to come boldly to God for help. 
Now, this is something that you've heard many times if you're in the church, that you have free access to God. In fact, it's something that you've probably heard so many times that it just is kind of a given for you. Something that you're accustomed to. You're no longer impressed by it the way you once were. Now imagine you're a Jew. See, if you're a Jew, you grew up learning a very plain lesson, which was this. You do not have access directly to God. And so the message of the gospel came in that, that Jesus is now the sacrifice that has torn the veil and he's brought about full and free access to God for the very first time. That was, that was a hard concept to get your mind around. And the other is saying, why in the world did you ever go back to some system with human priests when you now have full, unfettered access through Jesus Christ? He says, you're to come to God boldly when you need help. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. The throne of grace. So you think of God's throne, typically you think of God's throne of judgment, uh, where he will stand and he will uh, give an account, uh, everyone will give an account for the deeds that they have done in the flesh. And there's Apparently in scripture, different ways that the throne of judgment are different opportunities. There will be some for believers where they're judged for the deeds committed in the body and to rewards. Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 3 and 4. There's the great white throne of judgment where the sheep and the goats are separated. And then all those who are apart from Christ will be judged for the deeds they've done in the body and to eternal perdition. Revelation makes that clear. But this throne is different. This is, this is likely a reference to the mercy seat. Inside the Holy of Holies. And so when you think about in Old Testament times, the worshipers uh, could kind of come around the outside of the temple court, but they couldn't come in closely. The ordinary priest could come in a little bit to the altar, but only the high priest and only once a year could go into the Holy of Holies where the mercy seat was. And so the Ark of the Covenant over and over in the Old Testament is referred to as, as where the Lord would sit beneath the cherubs. And so when you think about this throne, this is to conjure up the image of the holy place. The place where God's very own presence resides. And the author says there's a manner that you are to approach this holy place. Really the presence of God. You're to come, and when you come, you're to come with confidence. You're to come with confidence. Why would you lack confidence or need confidence? Well, verse 13 just said that you're going to be exposed and naked before the eyes of God. That might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable going into the throne room. See, it's not an inappropriate feeling to feel insecure in the presence of God. In fact, that was the point in the Old Covenant, largely by design. You aren't clean and God is holy. You have a major problem. If you read Leviticus, I, when I read Leviticus, honestly, I get a little bit anxious thinking about what it would be like to be living under the old covenant. I mean, you start thinking, let's just set aside all of the sin for a minute, okay? We're going to set all of the sin aside. We're just going to talk about relating to God as a human in a body. I've got to worry about what's on my body, what's in my body, what's coming out of my body, what my body comes into contact with. 
you're thinking, man, I was really excited to go to worship, and then I got this little rash, or my nose started to run. I had a discharge. I was menstruating. I touched the wrong dish. I bumped into the wrong person or the wrong object. I mean, the list of things that would disqualify you from going to worship the Lord and being in His presence were many. And that's not even if you kicked the dog on the way out. I mean, we're talking about merely the things that would happen to your body. And then you start to think, out of our entire nation, each year, one guy gets to go into God's presence. I'm not a math major, but that's not a very high percentage. We're talking about what feels like lottery odds here. One guy gets to go into God's presence for all of our sakes, and all of us are going to do what? Like the little piggy that stayed home and had none. We're all outside. He gets to go in, but we're going to hang out out here. Oh, well, at least he gets to go every day. No. Once a week? No. Once a month? No. 364 days a year, he's not going in. One day he is. Again, not a math major, but that is a low percentage of days that we're having our sins atoned for in that holy place. And so when you begin to think about God's throne, God's throne is the last place a sinner should ever want to be. Absolutely the very last place a sinner should ever want to be. See, when you're before the throne, this indicates power and dominion and authority. Whatever the person on the throne says goes. There's no house of representatives. There's no due process. There's no legislator that needs to pass or vote on anything. Whatever the one on the throne says goes. This is the right to rule. and It's also the right to judge. And my friends, when mortals see the only God, the immortal one, they have the same response. John fell at the feet of Jesus as though dead. Remember what happened when Peter saw that Jesus was in fact God? He said, get away from me, Lord. I'm just a sinful man. And when you sin and when you're weak, your flesh doesn't run toward God, it runs away. Genesis chapter 3, Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. There you have it. Why run? Because God is scary when you're a sinner. See, it's no accident that Adam is hiding because he's physically naked. And in Hebrews 4.13, it says that you're going to be spiritually naked by the living and active word. And so suddenly we realize the God that we often want to tame. Even in, in churches, we try to tame God. God cannot be tamed. Jesus said that you're to fear not those who can kill the body, that's man, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And so when you begin to think about the, the ministry of a priest, yes, on the one hand, it's comforting that now we have someone to go between us and the Lord. But on the other hand, it's kind of alarming because it reminds us all the time that we're not fit to be in God's presence. And only one guy gets to go in. And, and even for him to do that, he has to offer sacrifices and, and get blood everywhere before he's even allowed to go into that place. Everything was designed to tell you that you were on the outside. Growing up, my dad worked at the state hospital, and due to the nature of his work and the crimes committed there in that particular uh, high-security portion that he worked, you could never visit dad at work. So each year, they'd have take-your-kid-to-work day and uh, 
probably to my mom's chagrin, all the kids stayed home because we couldn't go to work with dad. And so uh, we would hear about other kids and they got to go enjoy something with their dads and, and see their work and, and we were at home. And, and in fact, if dad needed something, we would drive over there and then we'd sit in the parking lot and we couldn't go hand it to him, rather we had to wait for him to come out. Right, we'd sit in the parking lot and we'd look at 12-foot fences with razor wire. We'd see the locked doors you had of a name badge and go through the security process. And I didn't really want his job as a kid, but it was clear to me that, that I was not invited. I was not allowed to be in there. I was outside. The protocols made it clear. And so in the Old Testament, you were over and over reminded that you couldn't get too close to God because he was a consuming fire. And even when you were the high priest, you had to make sacrifice before you went in. I was thinking about Queen Esther, and she had Xerxes' love. In fact, of all the virgins that came and were presented before him, he loved Esther more than the rest. He put a crown on her head. Then what happens? She hears about the secret plot. She's got to go into the king. And what's she say? I need the whole nation interceding on my behalf right now. Because if I go in and he doesn't hand out the scepter, I'm a goner. So even that, there was a, a loving relationship with the king, and yet there was a fear of the king. There was an understanding that to approach the throne was significant, that this was not a tame moment. Even when Jesus would teach us to pray, what would he say? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's a recognition of who God is. Why do we bow our head in prayer? Well, you don't have to bow your head, but it's one way of signifying that we're prostrating ourselves before God who's in heaven. That we're low, and he is not. And yet, what does the text say? When you go to this throne, you're to go with confidence. Not to try to sneak in. Not to go fearfully or doubting. You're to go into this King of Kings and Lord of Lords boldly with great familiarity, with reverence, and with joy. See, when you come in, it is though you are actually a child, you're part of the family. And so, although this king is not diminished in his glory or his authority or his power in any way, he's happy to have you there at the throne of grace. See, every group tries to find acceptance you were to think about the Baal worshipers on Mount Carmel before their God. They're slashing themselves, emaciating their flesh to try to somehow conjure up the favor of their deity. We see this in Muslim worship at times. You see this in Luther's torment prior to his conversion in his penance. Evangelicalism as our own version of enoughism to try to do enough to somehow get in God's good graces. Paganism has its own salvation. Right? right now it might be going woke or some other viewpoint where you suddenly put yourself in a position where you vis-a-vis -vis others have the moral high ground and now you're the one who's acceptable. For this context, it was Orthodox Judaism. That was what you were coming out of. And so all you had known was God is set apart, we are sinful, and we do not have access. And now through Jesus Christ, you're told you're commanded to draw near to the throne of grace. And when you're to do it, you're to do it with confidence. 
So you're to come to God in your prayer. And the idea here is even in the context of your sin. Because he says that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. For those of you who are unskilled in prayer, distracted, weak, and feeble, join the club. When you come to God in prayer, you are to come trusting that this is a throne of grace. See, we need grace when we get there, we need grace while we linger there, and we need grace when we leave the throne room. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't you guys dare for a second think that you could ever have any other method to have God be pleased to invite you into his throne room than through the merits of Jesus, your great high priest. And when you come, don't believe that he is weary of you. Don't believe that he's impatient or he's getting tired of your requests. That what you bring is too small and insignificant or too hardened or too rebellious. Rather, this throne is always a throne of grace. My friends, you and I have unstaggering confidence before the Lord through Jesus Christ to not doubt his words, to actually cling to him with confidence and to come boldly to him for help. You know, the sentiments that come across in this passage are very similar to the ones penned by Charles Wesley when he wrote, Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off the guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written in his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for all our race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. My God has reconciled his pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. Will you pray with me? Lord in heaven, you have been so merciful to uh, bring us into your family. Lord, so often we view uh, your love for us as the way we love, which is uh, stingy, it's divided. Uh, Lord, it is often weak. And yet, even in the imagery of, Lord, the prodigal son, the way that you uh, run after uh, that the Gentile nations is the imagery there, the ones who would come to you. Uh, Lord, it is uh, without withholding any love. It's It's not withholding a certain portion. It's not uh, requiring some type of penance, even as the son would say, uh, Lord, here I'm, I'm ready to work, Father, so that I can be in your good graces. And I, the father just throws his arms around him and, and says, you're my son, you're, you're welcomed home. And so, Father, I pray that you would, um, in our daily lives, uh, bring confidence to our souls, not because we see that uh, simply we're growing, uh, not because we see maturity that somehow now makes us feel more adequate, uh, not because we feel like we've uh, mastered the right kind of quiet time or uh, the regimen or a certain distance between an embarrassing sin that now makes us more fit to be in your presence. Uh, but Lord, that we would learn to come with confidence by faith and faith alone in the finished work of Christ. Uh, Lord, and that that would be a great freeing experience for us as your people. 
Lord, what a blessing this is, and uh, we rejoice in it. We rejoice in it for Christ's glory. Amen.